You guys are listening to Tech TV podcasting series. In our show, we bring you the best in technologies, innovation, startups, fintech, artificial intelligence, cloud computing, and the latest and the greatest in technology worldwide. The panel topic, uh, essentially, we wanted to focus on the elephant in the room. So obviously, there's been a huge market correction. Uh, funds like Tiger Global, Couture, Arc, uh, huge losses recently. So the topic is investing with discipline, and we want to focus on valuation, term sheets, and due diligence. Uh, Edwin's going to be moderating the panel here in Boca, and Jonas will be helping out in Toronto. But uh, Jonas, Edwin, I'll let you take it from here. Yeah, good morning. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you guys for uh, uh, coming virtually as well from all different parts of the country. And I'm more, more than happy to guys, you guys are invited to come to the incubator here in, in Boca Raton anytime you guys want to. And I want to start with my right hand here with Wayland and see like what are his thoughts on um, on the future of an investment with discipline. What's going on? Where you, you, you shared a little bit of your experiences yesterday about Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, firsthand, we've definitely experienced um, an incredible influx of, of, of capital from the sidelines, you know, coming in the last year or two. Um, and I think the, <laughs> the supply of, of quality opportunities were maybe not match, matching the, the, that demand. And we've seen firsthand, you know, just rounds get bid up and funded exceptionally quickly, um, especially in, you know, the, the Web3 space um, and emerging markets that we focus on in the past year or so. Um, it's been it's been crazy to see that you know that that speed of capital getting deployed and I think when you know you mentioned the Tiger Globals the point seventy twos the Co twos I mean they they definitely shook things up as they as they came in I think you know we have to be cognizant that they're they're also playing probably a different a different game um, than 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 a lot of the the, the medium size or, or smaller funds than them so that's that's something we've We've realized, you know, especially in emerging markets, we've seen them, you know, t- take take a more like index approach across the space, like a tiger. Um, you know, their their mandate has been insane. We've been hearing they they said get two deals a day done, um, and their 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 mandate is a part of you know do, do not call me after we're okay. not we're not here to you know sit sit on your board and give advice. We're here to deploy capital, and and you know that's definitely changed the game for at least you know the. The venture stages of, of of financing. And you just raised seven million dollars, right? Like that's is that right? Can you tell us a little bit about about that? And this is uh, yeah in relation to this subject matter. Yeah. So I mean, I'm a startup founder. Um, so I've seen uh, we've raised we've raised close to ten now, and I've seen sort of the to your point uh, all the you know influx of capital. I've talked to other founders, um, which really they were in a sort of catch twenty two. They were like what do you want me to do? Well, I'm just going to take the money, right? Like why refuse the money if it's, you know, coming to me really after the first meeting, um, the way we've done it and are positioning ourselves, uh, you know, just build the best business, right? Focus on your customers, focus on building a product that matters, go back to the fundamentals. I think a lot of stuff that happened from the founder perspective played into the market dynamics a lot. And I saw a lot of businesses um, sort of move away from just delivering products and really went to sort of marketing for front fundraising purposes. But for us, we're enterprise SaaS. We're delivering software to retailers. Um, we are very AI-based, so we have to get the best talent out there. So fundraising is critical to that strategy. But a big part of where we're focused now is, again, heads down, working alongside our, our brands. We do have strategics in our cap table as well. So that is definitely um, supportive of our, our growth. But again, it's back to the fundamentals. And I think that's sort of consistent across the board from other founders I've talked to. Now, how about on the other side, let's hand off like a little bit of the discussion to our guys on Zoom. How about you, Jonas? What, what's, your, what's your input on this subject? Um, well, you know, uh, by the sound of cannons booming, uh, is, is my take. Uh, if you look historically at, uh, both venture returns and also kind of outcomes for entrepreneurs, 
these periods map to uh, hands down uh, the the best outcomes. Um, so certainly, you know, the tides are going out uh, in the public markets. I was not net, but a hundred percent short uh, in in Q1 and uh, Q2. Uh, so there was a number of you know just obvious. I don't want to call them frauds, but but close to it. Uh, publicly traded companies that went out with with kind of next to no analysis uh, vis-a-vis SPACs uh, had no business and with fundamental misalignments between the you know the principals and and the partners that that listed them and uh, and investors. So I think it, certainly the bloom came off the rose on things like SPACs and some of us made a lot of money <laughs> uh, calling it. And um, and some people, unfortunately, lost money, you know, getting getting sold a story there. Um, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, in terms of go forward investment strategy, I think, you know, you know, so, some practical considerations would be, um, you know, not not counting necessarily on follow on rounds following it quite the same clip. So, you, you know, you want to plan a little bit more to raise your, your next round. Uh, I think you want to, you know, as a fund, reserve more capital to to support your winners. Um, I think that the uh, the M and A environment got more complex. So uh, for a while there, uh, there was some, you know, there's a quite a few paths to liquidity, uh, either at a kind of an inflated sale on the back of kind of inflated stock prices, and we've seen deals fall apart, frankly. Um, uh, so corp dev kind of, I think has, uh, retrenched quite a bit. Um, and, uh, I, I guess in a sequelae in terms of hiring is it's going to potentially be a little bit easier to get to recruit great talent because, you know, you had engineers, uh, which are the lifeblood of technology companies, at least who joined, um, let's say a, a publicly traded company at an inflated valuation. And they were issued options at that valuation. Now they're completely underwater. And it's a bit of a catch-22 for those companies because if they want to re-up those teams, that's even more dilutive. And they're going to get further hammered in the public markets. So that, that kind of uh, disvirtuous uh, loop is, uh, is advantageous from my point of view when you're, when you're starting afresh. Um, I also think that there'll be opportunities and, uh, to kind of, let's call it, you know, move things off balance sheet. So a good friend of mine here in Toronto uh, recently uh, sold because in the last year or so sold uh, his venture back company to a private equity roll up, but in the process actually was able to extract the core um, IP and reposition his company as a, a developer tools, an API centric company. Whereas the private equity group really was only focused on the customers revenue and EBITDA that, that their kind of existing business uh, had so I think that there'll be kind of a lot of carve out, spin out type opportunities where companies are uh, need uh, to either raise money in creative ways or move cost centers off their balance sheet. So I, I don't know if that that was too broad of a summary of some of the things. No, that, I think I like it. I think you. Oh, but, um, but I yeah, think you pointed out what a, like a, like a, the spin off and being creative with the with your assets, for example, like your your friend did in, in Canada. Sounds like a very good opportunity. Uh, moving, extracting the value of intellectual property sometimes is mess in many startups when uh, maybe potentially that could be the best value play in case a downturn, in case you need to to, uh, to be creative with the capital. So uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, uh, Waylon knows me well, and I've been harping on, uh, I, I borderline been disgusted by the activity in the last two years. Um, it, it's just uh, too cheap of capital, really bad deals getting funded. Uh, the fact that people can't get information rights or due diligence done, or they're going to miss out on the deal. Uh, I can't think of a larger warning sign. And so in the last two years as an investor, I was really priced out of deals. Uh, I did one deal in the last two years, which I did with Whaling because oh, I wow. trusted his judgment. Um, in that time, what we decided to do was we incubated a few projects because it was more capital efficient. And we've uh, started the process of well, get this result. No problem. We have some. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we started the process, or did we lose the Zoom? Are you there? 
Still here. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, we were able to launch some successful businesses that are already free cash flowing. Um, while everyone else is on a hiring freeze, we've now opened up to hiring, but at a reasonable and responsible rate. And we'll be doing acquisitions this year and next. And I'm very excited to see all this crap get flushed down the toilet and focus on businesses that actually drive real value and enough of the games and nonsense. Um, so I, I'm probably the only one in the room excited to see uh, a pullback. Um, and I think it's I think it's healthy and we need it. Otherwise, we're chasing nonsense that shouldn't get funded and evaluations that are impractical. Let me ask you one thing you mentioned yesterday, Luma, right? What, are, what, what, what happened and what's your firsthand experience with Luma <laughs> discussing evaluation? Luna, Luna, the, the Luna, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that, definitely. Um, I've, uh, we have good, you know, close, we're advising a, a few friends and they, they launched a hedge fund um, this year. Um, so we, We've we've sort of rode rode that whole crypto wave with them, and it's been it's been you know from a private markets perspective, we've seen we've I've never seen deals get funded with this velocity, and you know talking to one of the partners at, at one of the biggest funds, and they I will not name that fund, but you know I talked to them about they they just they, they had just led a a round and I said what's what, what's that company what what did they do they said you know the partner's like I truly have no idea yet I haven't done due diligence and they've committed to leading right so it's it, it, with an environment like that I mean you know the, the, the lunas of the world are bound to happen so I think are the big balloons that we're just pumping exactly exactly I mean there's just so much driving. and when you talk about the reset I think this was inevitable um at you know it's 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 It was it's through the through Q3 and Q4 of last year. I mean, the, the velocity was was incredible. And with the, the whole Luna crash, I think, took a lot of um, air out of this bubble, mm-hmm. um, especially in the Web3 and crypto space, which, again, I think is a very healthy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, there is actually be, uh, diligence being done. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, the word utility, especially across Web3 and crypto now, I think there is a lot more awareness around it from um you know, led by at least, you know, the institutional groups in this space uh, who are all literally, I mean, just getting into the space, not really having any idea about what they are investing in, frankly speaking, especially more of the traditional firms that got active in the space. Um, it was, yeah, just truly incredible to see firsthand. And, and this whole, you know, I think now there's, there, there's a reason for, you know, regulators to start, you know, becoming more involved, which, you know, it's, I don't know yet if it's, if that's a good thing or a bad thing for that particular space, but there's certainly, you know, more, more discipline and diligence that, that, that will be coming around this time around, you know, and, and also, you know, the average age, I think the participants in that, in that space are, 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 are definitely younger, I would say than traditional finance or even venture private equity. So, For a lot of people, this is their first time now entering not only a a bear market in the crypto space, but coinciding with a macroeconomic right downturn. So this will be interesting to see how you know all of them adapt and adjust. Yeah, it sounds like uh, for the last let's say decade, people would just throw money at different coins and just even randomly picking, and it was sufficient to get an exit. But with the current situation then uh, the smarts will have to come to, to fruition and people with the smarts and the due diligence that you described, the, the discipline to invest are the survivals and all of those that did it in a random way, they will probably be wiped out and um, not been able to continue. So in that regard, like we have also here um, Adam. So um, you want to chip in on that subject? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've been investing in venture since 2014, I, I run a fund now that's focused on pre-seed and seed investing um, called Looking Glass. And I don't invest in companies that are raising at valuations above 15 million post. My average over the last two years has been 9 million post money in rounds that are typically like a million and a half to $2 million dollars in size. And so for me, like, honestly, uh, everything that's going on right now is validating of the strategy that I've been executing for the last 24 months because it, The companies that I've backed have significant margin for error, right? They can, they've raised small rounds at low valuation. So there isn't this untenable benchmark that they need to clear for their next round of financing. 
I have five companies out now raising three and a half to $4 million seed rounds. And the valuations will be, you know, certainly suppressed compared to what they were 12 months ago, but they shouldn't have rate. They shouldn't, they shouldn't have been what they were 12 months ago. Right. If you're raising $4 million right now, after you raised, you know, 900 K 12 months ago, that's a totally reasonable, you know, trajectory of, of capital for, uh, capital raises and a company raised 900 K at a $5 million cap 12 months ago. And they're going to raise 4 million at somewhere between, you know, 16 and 20 million post, And they'll give up 20 to 25% of the company for $4 million. And it's a totally reasonable amount of dilution. But that round 12 months ago was getting done at $40 million valuation. You guys are listening to tech at TV podcasting series, right? Which, was totally not that, I mean, frankly, not that 20 is even connected to fundamentals, but at least it's close to what a market valuation should be and would have been for the last, you know, call it the pre pre pandemic period. Um, and so at this point, I'm, you know, I would prefer that the market weren't tightening for a whole bunch of reasons, not the least of which is my own fundraising that's going on. But, um, as a pre-seed and very, I'll say frugal seed investor, I still feel fairly well insulated from what's transpiring right now. And I think it's going to take a long time before it even comes down to hitting, you know, the rounds that I'm doing. I, what I think the world is going to look like over the next, you know, if, if this is a prolonged, you know, tightening, I think it's going to mimic what happened at the beginning of COVID in March and April of 2020, where you saw this sort of bifurcation of deals that got done. Tons of money went into Airtable and Figma and Stripe and Canva, you know, large established, you know, real legitimately companies that probably could be public and they're clearly going to be winners. They're not going to disappear. They might be slightly overpriced, but these are companies doing, you know, hundreds of millions in, in revenue. And then there's going to be tons of capital entering into the pre-seed and seed world, sub $20 million valuations where people still want to write checks. They can move really quickly comparatively and still put a bunch of, you know, uh, still get a bunch of at-bats. And that middle, that series A, B, C, no one wants to touch those deals because at the beginning of COVID, it was because it was hard to know if those companies were real or not doing diligence over zoom. Now we're cool with doing diligence over zoom, but no one wants to touch them because you had companies raising billion raising series B's at 200 X, you know, revenue multiples. And so none of those companies are actually willing to take down rounds. Interesting. Interesting. And discussing in terms of time frame and timeline, uh, how do you, how does the panel? And I would like to, to hear your thoughts on the comparison to the 2008 downturn. I heard a lot of like people uh, um, basically comparing the current situation to what happened in 2008, the bubble bars in the real estate market and how it affected trickle down the, 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 that side effect to all the other markets, including ventures. So I wonder where are your thoughts and starting with Waylon here. Sure. I think um, I, I experienced 2008, you know, I think secondhand from, from my parents who were both in corporate finance at a time. My mom's, you know, actually um, <laughs> um, was at the Beeman even before that. So I saw that growing up, um, that, 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 that first crisis. So I think that it, it was sort of ingrained in me at an early age that, you know, um, these downturns do happen as much as we'd like to believe in the last 13 or 14 years that, you know, it's, it's, it, it was nice. I, I think it's, it's reality really hit me in the last four or five months in, in a way that, um, it, it being a professional and in my working career, seeing that firsthand, experiencing that firsthand definitely, um, left, left an impact personally. So it's how, how do I take that, you know, moving forward? I think it's, 
going this, back this to the test. basics. Yeah, go really, really, you know, it's been a test for us of going back to basics. We expected this over the last, let's say, three or four quarters. So we've been already pulling back and deploying capital. Um, we've been reserving, you know, as much of our balance sheet as possible for, you know, going into this this downturn or, or bear market. And um, we've also switched to more of a, you know, incubation model, um, looking at similar to what Connor mentioned, you know, looking at incubating opportunities that we've identified over the last year or two. Um, so I think that's, that's how we're playing defense, um, through this, through the cycle and looking to go back to, you know, fundamentals building again and waiting patiently sort of for the right opportunities, you know, and I think across the board, that's a sentiment I've been hearing from, you know, a lot of my, you know, friends across, you know, P firms, Wall Street, hedge funds, you know, everyone's kind of sitting up, sitting on their hands. So I think, you know, that's how we're, we're approaching it. We want to, you know, stay disciplined, keep building and, and, and waiting for things to shake out. So, Connor, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you think it's going to be a downturn, that it's going to be a momentary downturn, or do you think that this is not coming? Maybe like some people pre are predicting maybe 2023, 2024 to be actual recession to occur. Um, I, I don't know, just like anyone else. I, I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of unknowns, including what's happening in Ukraine both from what's happening with the Russian invasion, but also uh, what could happen with our food supply. Uh, you know, we've inflated our currency away. There's a lot of uh, issues, even stateside, that we're dealing with. And so I could see this disappearing in 18 months, or I could see this being a three or four year thing. I think what we have to see is, is what happens next. Um, so I think there's just too many unknowns and it's healthy to get in a more defensive position and figure out, you know, what, what are the assets you want to shore up and, and what are the things you want to get rid of? Um, because right now, uh, like everyone else has been harping is free cash flow matters. And if you're not in a position to get the free cash flow in the next six months, I think you're in a really ugly position. Uh, unless you're, you know, you got the next Google, which I think a lot of founders think they do, but none of them really do. Um, so I think uh, it's it's healthy to uh, figure out how you can be default alive as a term that's been running around a lot. Got it, got it. And uh, we have maybe like another like uh, fifteen to twenty minutes, right? But I you want to like see like if uh, uh, or friends in uh, Zoom, Jonas, perhaps you can chip in. Do you believe this is a long-term downturn or do you think there is a maybe just a little glitch in the system i'm going to get back into where we were we we actually haven't heard from uh, glub yet oh Glenn, I, I yeah i didn't see it was there hey you're sure, Glenn, no sorry no you're, no, you're no. sorry about all that like, I, I think you are the best guy for this question actually we're going to be oh, seeing no. it all good all good <laughs> I, I mean, I, 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 we, so we, um, um, by the way, I really love what Adam just said, because I, I think the, I'm just going to zero in for just a second, the barbell nature of venture capital that we're going to see over the next couple of years is really scary for startups. Indeed, angel funding will be there. Late stage funding will still be there, but that sort of uh, desert to cross, I mean, really teams need to start sort of focusing on marketing and growth strategy, making sure they're efficient with capital because this is what usually happens in sort of in recessions. So uh, definitely um, uh, this is something that, you know, just uh, we tell all of our portfolio companies to focus on in terms of overcapitalizing, making sure you have maybe even 18 to 24 months at the very least of capital, uh, being very efficient with funding, et cetera. But in terms of the, the upcoming recession, so we tend to think that it's going to be more similar to the one of year 2000 because the run up to it was very similar to sort of 1999. Um, and I think it's going to be, so we're planning for maybe to four to five years of bad news, unfortunately, because I think the Lehman crisis, and I was at Lehman myself, I was a former trader. So I think it was more focused on arms and overextension of credit to homeowners, right? It was a very sort of, yeah, it affected a lot of people because homeownership is huge in the United States. Uh, but it, it really was focused on sort of the, the glitch in the banking system. This, those, those loans should not have been, um, uh, written, but the issue today is um, essentially central banks um, have used up um, all of their tools uh, in terms of fighting inflation, right? So they've done so much QE uh, over the last few years. So balance sheets, both in the United States and the European uh, Union, are huge. 
And um, uh, rates, you saw that the moment you start hiking rates, uh, jitters show up in the market, uh, everything is selling off. Uh, tech firms, especially big ones, instead of really innovating, have been just doing share buybacks, right? So, I mean, if you like, if you fell asleep two years ago and you look at the iPhone, so basic things, right? Do you really see transformation, right? And I'm not saying that that should be, obviously it's hard to innovate, right? But in general, um, in, I don't think we've, we've in, innovated enough so the payback is we are overextended. And of course, it doesn't make any sense that you can be a YC graduate with, you know, two guys and a dog and raising at a hundred million valuation, right? That doesn't make any sense. Like this is not how innovation works. So I think what, what we are focusing on, we're, we're making sure that uh, people are, uh, you know, our startups are capitalized well. And we also have good co-invests because, you know, again, the other sort of aspect that, you know, you know was brought up, uh, the roll up for private equity, Late stage VCs are really helpful, right? So making sure, again, as startups, as you guys are building things and VCs, as you're investing in, in, in startups, I think this is the most valuable thing you can do is um, speaking to later stages of capital, be it VC or PE or corporate venture capital uh, or strategics, right? So that's the aspect that I think would be um, kind of protecting your yourself for the downside, both as an investor, as an entrepreneur right now. But yeah, the plan is next few years. I mean, the awful war is, uh, I don't think it's happening. Food shortages, um, if we don't get uh, food to Africa, you get this great migration again to Europe. Germany is already screwed because they can't use Russian oil and gas. So their economy, it's like, there's just so much bad news coming up that I feel like um, uh, we need to be sort of super careful. One last comment, I don't want to usurp the mic too much. Uh, it might be more fun also to look uh, as a VC at certain slices of the ecosystem that usually do very well in recessions, right? So I definitely think that Web3 is wonderful. I mean, Luna was a disaster, but it's mostly because it was not a collateralized um, stablecoin, right? And it's the algorithmic approach was interesting, but it was reliant on this sort of honeypot of 20% API uh, sort of yields uh, that people were sort of attracted to, right? But I do think Web3 has a lot of great stuff, right? I, I think in terms of as a method of payments, right? As, as a method of access to banking for the underbanks, I think that we're going to see a lot of great stuff play to earn, engage to earn all of that good stuff. I mean, including silly things like, you know, we're seeing with step, step on and et cetera, right? with walking and, and earning money. But also automation, autonomy, like all of these things that are helping um, businesses be more efficient. I'm not saying fire the people, but I'm saying turn people into trainers of AI systems or, or robots. Those are efficiencies that we really like. And in the recessions, when companies are looking at this, at the payroll, they'd rather invest capital as capital versus then versus salaries. So whatever businesses can sort of feed into this automation and autonomy, uh, I think that they're going to do well, despite the, the slowdown. I'll pause now, but I mean, yeah. No, That's thank you. That was, a, that was a great insight. And, and I wanted to bring back to, to, to the room here. We have Hanif with, with, your, uh, with your startup. How do you see this uh, potential uh, downturn affecting your basis? Well, I feel, um, well, I saw this week with, uh, Elon, Elon Musk, um, and actually I admired him for a couple of things. It showed how decisive he was or is. If you look at it, like the best CEOs are decisive in these times. They can say, okay, and Sequoia sent out this brilliant presentation, which I'm sure some of you have seen, where they talked, they talked about this moment being a, a really pivotal moment where you have to make these decisions. But what I think happens a lot of times, especially as a founder, is that you get sort of frozen in this moment and you like you don't know what to do. You don't know like what decisions to make. You don't know what to cut. It's very easy to say, do this. Whereas the next thing is when you have 25 people on your payroll and you have to drive efficiencies in your business. And one of the things that I admired about Musk was that he has so much stuff going on. He has a Twitter thing blowing up. His life is a constant mess. And he was able to just get his executives and say, look, everyone back to work, everyone in the office, even though that was an unpopular, potentially an unpopular decision, plus then obviously cutting 10% of his, his workforce, similar mindset with me, right? I have to just be very decisive. I have to say, look, team, this is what we, instead of looking at a six month roadmap, cut it down to three months, cut it down to one month. What do we have to cut this month? What do we have to focus on? which customers we have to close, et cetera. It's just all about being decisive right now and just taking it in the moment. And I think that once, you know, I, I heard, you know, what you said about bifurcation in the market, 
I completely agree. I think angel deals are going to get done. I think growth stage companies are going to get done. I think the companies in the middle um, that have to grow and have to show that they're best in class to get funded, especially in later rounds, will come down to this moment where they have to be decisive. They have to make the right decisions um, and they have to be ruthlessly efficient with capital to survive. And in terms of uh, um, there in our panel there, uh, Jonas, uh, what do you think will be those opportunities or those markets that potentially will become uh, um, valuable in this uh, potential downturn? Hmm. Um, well, you know, uh, uh, I, you know, despite the uh, all the negative headlines, I don't think that the world is coming to a screeching halt. Uh, people still need uh, food and shelter and credit. And um, and the march of progress denominated in technology, which is really the only form of gains that we have as a, a species, um, you know, continues. Uh, I don't see it slowing down at all. I think it actually continues to compound. Um, when I think about these, you know, chaotic times, uh, I think about kind of returning to. I think the basic formulas. So one would be tearing. It's an opportunity to tear down bad law is, is, uh, you know, one thesis to explore. Um, when you think about Uber and Airbnb, what did they really do? Well, they, they tore down bad laws and that, and the destruction of bad law mapped to, uh, you know, the creation of value, uh, to touch on kind of some of the web three opportunities, um, uh, that, that Gleb uh, noted, yeah, and, and others as well. Sure, yeah, the, you know, Luna's approach was, uh, was a house of cards, but, you know, the idea of, of you know, securitization uh, and fractional ownership um, that is ultimately uh, backed by, you know, collateral is interesting. And so I think what we'll begin to see is some of the infrastructure that was uh, developed uh, for things like NFT marketplaces, which, you know, up and way back down really quickly, get repurposed to things with social utility. And I think we'll end up building over the next five uh, to seven years uh, a huge number of companies that reorganize core parts of our society whether that be commercial real estate, uh, healthcare, you know, like it, it, I think that, that COVID, you know, to, to shift to, you know, uh, back in time, just two years from the, the present crisis in, in Europe and uh, the war in Ukraine, um, COVID I think provided us with an opportunity to challenge some of our assumptions as a society around you know, from every, so, you know, if you want to focus on healthcare, how long it takes to develop and bring to market new, new uh, modalities of uh, vaccination and, and medicines. You know, we, we had Operation Lightspeed uh, uh, administration notwithstanding. Um, I think it was just phenomenal that we, we brought uh, to market, you know, all these mRNA uh, vaccine options. Was it enough in retrospect? Probably not. Uh, but I think it, it, it creates a new set of kind of expectations and abilities that we have to, um, to create value. So I, I think it, it, simple things like, you know, the rise of virtual care. It's so convenient now. You know, my kid has a, a problem. Well, my wife's a doctor, but but uh, my kid has, a, you know, my neighbor's kid had a problem. And over the weekend, they were able to, to you know, ring their GP, you know, their GP, their family doc and, and get an answer. And that wasn't uh, something that was normal even a few years ago. So, uh, you know, that's that's touching a little bit on healthcare. Um, in terms of, you know, uh, consumer centric opportunities, you have kind of all this infrastructure that was spun up to extend credit. And you say, why does that matter? Right? Well, yeah, sure. There's going to be an enormous implosion around buy now, pay later. 
right? So the Sheen was built on the back of buy now, pay later. A whole host of companies were built on the buy, back of buy now, pay later type offers, which is really just consumer credit in, in a, in a, under a new name. Um, but I think the extension of credit to literally billions of people is now possible. And, and that's an enormous opportunity for progress. Now, imagine, for example, you wanted to build a house, but you, you didn't have available a mortgage or um, a home equity line of credit in order to buy materials and fund the, the, both the purchase of the land and, and the underlying development. How, how many people would be able to build homes? Credit is, is you know, in addition, I'd say that like the, the two wonders of the world are technology and, and the extension of credit. And I think the, again, this in infrastructure, both Web3 and otherwise, to extend credit to uh, billions of people who presently don't have it is, is just an enormous opportunity. And I think what we'll see is that it being expressed as infrastructure that gets baked into all sorts of consumer experiences. Um, so I don't know. Those are a couple of themes. I don't, I don't know if I answered your question. No, no, you, 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 you actually did very well. So, and, and touching on that, I wanted to uh, hear Adam's position on, on the, the financing situation, the credit lines and the, the centralized financing and Wave 3.0. What are your thoughts on that? And do you see an avenue for using DeFi for funding startups? I mean, full transparency, I don't really spend much time on Web3 and DeFi. I I'm a bear when it comes to DAOs replacing <laughs> venture, both because it would put me out of a job and also because um, I don't think great decisions are made by consensus in, in venture, particularly early stage venture in deals that for the most part, like are non-consensus, like the best investment opportunities at the earliest stages probably have 50% of VCs laughing at me. And the other 50% thinking it's a brilliant investment. Um, I think it's, it's, it's why I think a lot of investing committees um, don't have full consensus when they make decisions and allow, you know, the sponsoring investor to pound the table and convince others that they're willing to, you know, put their neck out there and, uh, you know, and, and, and take a, take a bet on a founder and a company. Um, So I, don't know, I, I'm involved in another DAO, like as a side project called LinksDAO. I'm one of the co-founders of that project. And candidly, I think DAOs are probably one of the worst forms of, of, of management and, and operational uh, governance. I actually think DAOs are probably a, a product of, um, probably a product of COVID and people's ability to work from home and work remotely and have a lot more time on their hands than they probably actually do. Um, if everyone were in an office, you wouldn't have probably 50 people working 10 to 20 hours a week on discord um, because they would have a boss looking over their shoulder, asking them why they're using some app instead of in an Excel spreadsheet. Um, so I think to, I mean, to Jonas's point, like I think a lot of behaviors and a lot of things were accelerated And, and took place strictly because of a COVID, you know, uh, work from home, remote environment. Um, but sort of bring it back to your original question. Like I, as an investor, I don't spend a lot of time investing in, in that space. Um, you, you, just, you, you believe there is a big disconnect because between the, the way investment is actually done by human beings and trying to turn that into a DeFi that's uh The structure might be dislocated in a way. Yeah. I think decision-making diligence, like these, especially at the earliest stages, right. These are such people and human driven evaluations of companies, right? Like I'm, you know, I know Gleb invests very early. Um, you know, I'm investing oftentimes pre-revenue, a lot of times pre-product. Like it's just me and an entrepreneur and I'm trying to make a judgment on, you know, that person's ability to execute, recruit, uh, you know, ship product and to outsource that decision-making to a, like a, a wide, a massive committee to vote. I think it, it's great as a compliment, right. In some ways it's sort of like, it's, it's like crowdfunding, right. Yeah. If you're going to do it on chain and as soon as the vote happens, you know, that capital is on chain. So it automatically happens. 
it's automatically wired. Um, but ultimately I, I view it as just a, another form of crowdfunding and it's, you know, another <clears throat> pool of capital that, you know, entrepreneurs can tap into, which is fantastic when we think about sort of funding innovation in a bunch of different ways and different forms of capital align with different founders in terms of what they're trying to accomplish, right? Venture, I think has become a blunt tool over the last decade. And actually it's like a very, and that's what happens when you raise billions of dollars in venture for venture funds. But I think venture is a, is a precision instrument. It's you, it's meant to be used for a very particular type of company and a very particular type of objective, which is to grow at a sort of an unnatural rate. Like you're supposed to grow as a company faster than you're, you're, you actually should. Right. Um, and when you've got billions and billions of dollars raised in venture funding, it's got to go to a bunch of different founders and entrepreneurs and companies that probably shouldn't raise that type of capital. They should raise, you know, less aggressive capital, more patient capital, you know, capital that's not underwriting to multi-billion dollar outcomes, but could be comfortable with a hundred million dollar outcome, which could be life-changing for an entrepreneur who could retain 50% of that company. But even on a $10 million fund that I invest out of hundred million dollar outcome actually doesn't really move the needle for me. Right? <laughs> so like there, there are things that, that I think DeFi and, or even non crypto enabled, you know, capital pools of capital enable that I think are great for entrepreneurs. And I think entrepreneurs and investors alike should do a better job of matching capital source and expectations with the entrepreneur objectives and this goes well beyond DeFi, but I think DeFi is an, you know, is an, is an element of that. Yeah. Well, I think uh, we have uh, Connor, right? Yes, uh, questions. Yeah, no, sorry, sorry. So we have a few minutes for questions from the, from the panelists or to the panelists from the audience. And you guys feel welcome to join this sit here and, and um, choose your question. No, uh, they can sit where they're sitting, but uh, John James, uh, do you guys have any questions? Um, question for Gleb. Uh, this is John Jacobs, by the way. Good to see you. Awesome. Um, I agree with you. This reminds me back in 2000, right? Um, and, and this downturn, you know, what we used to call the dot boom, right? To the dot bomb. And uh, it happened on, on St. Patty's Day, March 17th, when, that, when, when the market took a downturn. But, um, yeah, at the time, I had an incubator in Chicago called Believe, Believe.net. In 2000, that was, you know, interesting. Uh, I incubated Norvax, which became Go Health, which is Chicago-based. I mean, talking about a downturn of going, what, $6.6 billion when they went IPO in May of, of, of the pandemic. Uh, I think today their market cap is about $280 million. Uh, they're the biggest brokers of, of Medicare advantage programs, you know, with Humana, about 30% of their business. But, you know, when you say risk, you know, look at the, the recession proof industries and, and I'm, I'm big in healthcare. We have, a, we own a home care company out of Chicago and Florida here. And just announced a new on-demand mobile app for independent living. That's, that's streaming uh, virtually right now, very nicely. What are those recession-proof verticals or use cases that that you were uh, reflecting on, Gleb? Uh, that you think would be good to focus, um, you know? And to Wayland's point and Connor's point, you know, Connor didn't make an investment over the last two years. Pretty smart move, right? And maybe maybe he saw and he was an oracle and, and saw the vision that that things were going to take a downturn. But here we are. What could we take advantage of in these recession-proof? verticals or categories of use cases that you would recommend to look at for investment? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great open question. Actually, a, um, I think we should all sort of chime in on as the answer. My take on, on this is slightly biased. I'm a roboticist by training, so I love right. automation startups, right? So anytime you're dealing with efficiency, right? So Rod Brooks, uh, my favorite professor, actually, while I was at MIT, he, he has this great TED talk about robotics from years ago. And he essentially is saying workers should become robot trainers. 
right? Mm-hmm. Because simply, you know, demographics is such that we're getting older as a society. We don't want to be doing the jobs of say mining or, you know, like the, the ones that are actually really affecting your health. So we're actually fully on better off um, becoming machine trainers. And this also applies to artificial intelligence. So automation and autonomy in general um, is, is a great trade uh, during recession times because companies are looking to uh, either cut the costs or increase the efficiencies, right? And some smart ones, they, instead of cutting the staff, they try to introduce new efficiencies. And so this is where you can really supercharge the workers at a company, right? So finding these niche plays, as an example, would be in life sciences, we come up with a way to better look at all the patent filings and summarize them for the patent lawyers that work for, for a pharmaceutical company, right? Could It could be like atomize, which is, you know, uh, helping uh, scientists invent new drugs, right? So you're introducing this extra efficiency. You're not displacing the scientists. In fact, you're, you know, creating a superpower. So this is a space that I like um, a lot. And uh, since we've been touching on um, Web3 quite a bit, I do feel like, you know, the... The, the, the idea of access to credits and to banking and to payments for the emerging markets where there are uh, literally billions of people who have not had the benefits that we've had in, in the United States or Canada, North America broadly, right? So this is a huge space. I just don't know exactly uh, how to take advantage of this right now because, you know, we're, the world of crypto is still a uh, pain in the butt, right? You know, ledger is, uh, is difficult to use. It's uh, hard to explain to somebody new how this works. Security is a problem, right? Because obviously, you know, how many hacks happen on Discord every day? Uh, NFTs, you know, they don't really have, most of them don't have utility. So a lot of people get excited. Maybe, you know, it's, it's, it's fun for a bit and then the market sells off. So uh, I do think there are fundamental things to solve there, right? So it would be infrastructure, right? Could you communicate between uh, Avalanche and Ethereum in a transparent math uh, sort of way? Like our bridge is safe, but then you build the bridge and then it gets hacked. So is security safe for those bridges? Can, you know, if company Solana is, let's say they're saying 55,000 packets per second, uh, messages per second, they'll, they'll be able to process and then they go down for seven hours. This is still a problem. So there's plenty of things to fix. And if you're the one fixing it, I think you'll do well, right? But again, um, I tend to focus more on the automation aspect. So AI and robotics, so traditional sort of industry 4.0, future of work, that's the space. That's my answer. But I would love for everybody else to kind of chime in, see what people think. Well, I'll, I'll finish by saying we, we got commonality between Jonas and Gleb that uh, the market for, for helping the unbankables, right, and the billions of people that are out there who are unbankable, if we can go after a market like that and do it efficiently and well, uh, that would be a good business to get into. Wayland. Awesome. Very that's awesome. It, that's it. Yeah, that's it. I was going to chime in. That's exactly what we're actually looking at, um, you know, utilizing or not utilizing DeFi. I think that's... Yep. That's a powerful tool, as you as you mentioned. I don't think the only way to play it is with DAO governance or, um, you know, in, in terms of that angle. I think I think credit is huge. I mean, we we you know, it's been said a couple of times. Credit, um, there were credit thrown around, and I think in emerging markets, which we play a lot in, especially in Latin America, um, <clears throat> credit's non-existent. You know, there's there's significant lack of access to not just credit, but all sorts of financing options up until the last year or two, where the $19.5 billion of venture capital had flowed, you know, flowed through the, the, the venture ecosystem in Latin America. But prior to that, it was, I think, less than three. And prior to the, the year before that was less than one. So bef- up until the last two or three years, it's really been non-existent. In terms of credit, there's no such thing as real, like venture that there, um, Credit cards are non-existent. About 80% of the population down there, do, you know, have never accessed any form of credit um, in their life. Um, so <laughs> I think DeFi has huge use case in terms of the democratizing access to financial products. It may not be in the form of um, what it is today, because I think Web3 as a whole is at, in my opinion, 1.0 version, right? Just like the dot-com era where, you know, uh, space.com or pizza.com was worth a lot of money without any real utility. Um, but then what did you do? You could order online, then you could deliver. And then, you know, so I think there, there's going to be a significant evolution, especially when the smartest people, at least we know, are migrating into that space. Um, whether or not it's for a cash grab or not, I think that's one thing. But when the smartest 
developers we know, engineers we know, builders we know are moving into that that space at this at this pace. I think I think this next iteration will be will be very very interesting to observe. I think there'll be huge opportunities and. Um, you know that's that's kind of what we what we've been looking at. So I think to your to your question, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity um, across Web three. I think this next next wave, this 2.0, will be you know a significant improvement. I think a lot of the garbage is being flushed out as we speak, um, and and even in, in in emerging markets where take out DeFi uh, as well. I think I think in fintech in in a lot of these regions, in terms of emerging markets, you know there's Latin America, there's Southeast Asia, I don't even know if India is considered that anymore, um, but even Africa, right? A lot of a lot of the the first layers um, of the ecosystem in terms of the tech uh, or the the digital financial infrastructure is laid down. A lot of what what is, has been built in the last year would not even be possible without a lot of what has happened, you know, in the last two or three years prior to that. You know, even even in, in Latin America, there's open banking just, you know, sort of entered that market over the last two years. There's no such thing as automatic debit, auto pay. You know, there's, there's still a lot. It's still very analog. It's still very manual. Um, yet the next generation of consumers are yearning and searching, even, even, in, even in emerging countries, they still grew up with an iPhone or, you know, some sort of, you know, smartphone in their hands. So they are connected. They are digitally native. And I think Web3 has just sort of changed the narrative as well in terms of, the access points, right? You know, in terms of being on ramp and and to have some sort of digital financial footprint, which their parents and prior generations probably never had a chance in in having. So I think a lot of these are very interesting things that that we're actually you know looking at incubating a couple of you know opportunities in that that space because there's just so much white space still. Yeah. And actually, to your point, Axie Infinity, right? During the bad times, right, of COVID, that allowed you know allowed essentially. Filipino grandmothers to make money because they couldn't sell, you know, snacks to tourists anymore. Right. So these exactly. things, yeah. I mean, they're exciting. Exactly. I think, you know, cool statistic was, you know, th- during the last year in, in the Philippines, there was more people with an Axie Infinity wallet than a bank account. Mm-hmm. Wow. Right. So, and they were making more minimum wage um, or, you know, more than minimum wage playing, Axie Infinity versus, you know, working in a, as a waiter or, you know, even, you know, so I think, (laughs) is that sustainable? No, clearly not. But I think, you know, it's a, it's, it's a one big giant math problem, which I think it's inevitably going to be solved. Um, And, you know, there is going to be a, a tokenomic structure that will work. Um, I mean, one can argue that, right. Is the current economic structure globally in traditional finance, is that sustainable? you know, if there was not unlimited printing going on. Right. So I think, yeah, I think, I think it poses good, good, good questions and, and disruption to, you know, I think like what Jonas mentioned in terms of, you know, laws, right. And how, how, how society will perceive things and, and how innovation happens, right. And change happens to break the laws. Yeah. All right. So I think we're going to, Joe is brought to you by have a little break right now. At the Eglevator in Boca Raton, Florida.